Bible with me this morning to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to be looking again at verses 18 through 30, really focusing on verse 23 through 28. Through 27, excuse me, 23 through 27. But I'm going to begin reading at verse 9 because this, our text happens in a context. And I think it'll be uh, much easier for uh, us to see that if we go ahead and, and read. So I'm going to begin verse, eight, uh, verse 9 of chapter 18, Luke 18, verse 9. And we'll read through verse 30. This is the living, dynamic, powerful word of God. Let's give our attention to it. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them, and when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Oh, God in heaven, we are people who need our eyes to be opened. We don't deserve this good gift, and yet we ask that you would give it. On the basis of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, give us um, eyes to see your truth and hearts to receive it and delight in it and be transformed by it. We thank you for our Lord Jesus who spoke uh, these life-giving words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, we uh, were studying the, uh, the case of the rich young ruler. And we 
Um, we noted that that story happens in a context, as we read this morning, of other stories, all dealing with the central theme, how do you get into the kingdom of heaven? Who gets the blessing of God? Who gets to come near to God? Who gets in to that wonderful banquet feast with Father Abraham? And Jesus, we notice through these, these stories here, these verses, Jesus is over and over refuting the basic given assumptions of the religious community uh, that was there. He was continually refuting the commonly held answers to those questions. He refutes in the tax collector and publican story, he ref- the Pharisee and the tax collector, he refutes the assumption that moral people get into the kingdom. And so he stands up, here's the, here's the Pharisee, this, in, this incredibly moral man. Whatever you might think about his, you know, kind of going over the top when it comes to his zeal, whatever you could say about his, his demeanor, you can't deny the man keeps the law. He's a moral man. Everybody would acknowledge that. And, and the assumption is uh, Pharisees certainly will be getting into the kingdom. And yet the story, um, the Pharisee doesn't get in at all. It's, it's the tax collector whom everyone would recognize as a lost cause. Uh, he is a religious dropout. He's a moral train wreck. This is, this is example A, exhibit A. This is what you show your kids. You say, boys and girls, now if you don't obey mommy and daddy, you're going to end up like that. And yet Jesus says it was exactly that man, the, the lost cause... Who goes home justified, declared innocent, righteous before the throne of God in heaven. It is a shocking story. And then in the, in the little children's story, here we have uh, parents bringing even infants, Luke notes. And why does he say even infants? Because there's a social scale, a social ladder of, of, of significance and the understanding is that people on the upper end of the social scale of significance, they're going to be nearer to the kingdom. Little infants, I mean, we love them, but they have no social significance, no social standing. And so when the disciples are rebuking the parents for bringing the little children, trying to get the little kids next to Jesus, they're rebuking them on the basis of what everyone knows to be true. Little children don't matter. And Jesus' sharpest rebuke for his disciples is right there. He's, his scorching response, don't hinder them. Who are you? How dare you keep these children, covenant children from the blessing of their covenant God? Don't you hinder it? And then he makes the application, don't you realize that if you don't accept the kingdom like a little child, you don't get in. You don't get in. Well, while they're reeling, a rich young ruler comes, and this man would be the pride of the community. This is uh, a man clearly blessed by God with wealth, with wisdom, with discernment. He has genuine spiritual concern. He's, he, he's got moral accomplishment. This is the Rhodes Scholar of the religious community. He's, he's again, the example of, of, this is what you want your boys to turn into, and he fails to enter the kingdom. These are shocking stories. Well, let's take it from verse 22 
Jesus has just given his command. And we find after Jesus' command a very sad man. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. So I want to ask the question this morning as we begin, why is he so sad? What's the nature of his grief? If you would have, you know, one of the sports reporters that are so uh, ubiquitous today, uh, you know, just go up and say, sir, uh, I can see that you're, you know, you just had a conversation with Jesus. You seem very downcast. Um, what are you feeling? Right? The most important question that we can ask in 21st century America. Uh, what are you feeling? What, 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 what happened? And the man would say, I, I asked him this question and, and I can't believe he said that. I can't, I can't believe that, that he told me I had to give everything away. I, you know, Jesus isn't a rich man. He, he, he probably doesn't understand what it's like to lose all your wealth. I don't think he's really thought through the implications of that command. Because, you see, if, if this man gives away his wealth, he gives away his life. He doesn't just lose all his nice things. He's got a really nice home. He's got a nice... Um, chariot or buggy, whatever they would be, right, or, or a fine stable of horses, that he loses all that. His, his good food, his fine clothes, he loses his social standing. You know that his friends are going to suddenly be busy. He's going to lose his position as a ruler. Most importantly, he's going to lose his religious reputation. You see, his wealth, in the eyes of the community, is the material mark of spiritual favor, spiritual blessing. The assumption of, of Judaism is that wealth, for Jewish men particularly, is a covenant blessing that God gives to those who are doing it right. Now, why would they believe that? Well, do you remember Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or sit in the seat of, uh, stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of living water, yielding its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. And in all that he does, he what? He prospers. He prospers. You see, this is Mr. Psalm 1. He's the guy David's talking about in the, in the eyes of the whole religious community and in his mind. This is his, this is his identity. This is his significance. This is his security. He's religiously sincere. He's morally earnest. And God has evidently blessed him with material wealth exactly like Psalm 1 says. And Jesus is saying, give it away. And that's why he walked away. Jesus, you see, isn't asking him just to give away his money. He's, he's asking him to give away everything, everything, his whole life, including the basis of his confidence before God. Jesus is asking him to base his identity, his significance, his security on this one thing alone, that he was with Jesus. Come follow me. That's all that Jesus offered him. And though he had no reason to doubt that Jesus was telling the truth, and maybe he was even in some way convinced that Jesus was speaking exactly what was right, he couldn't do it. 
He, he couldn't do it. He couldn't part with his wealth because his wealth was, was his life. It was his significance. It was even his religious security. And so he walks away. Remember, this is the Christ who said, wide is the gate. And the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, but narrow is the gate. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. This man is an example of exactly that. And we have then secondly a somber Savior. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. What did Jesus see? Jesus saw the sadness. That's what Luke tells us. Remember, uh, Mark has said that, that Jesus loved this man. He loved this man. And he had seen, Jesus, Jesus saw many people walk away, didn't he? He saw, he saw people walk away in anger. He saw people walk away in disbelief. He saw people walk away just disinterested, didn't really care for what he was saying. Just, they're going to move on. Did not sit on in this man's mind. Remember why this man had come. He was asking for eternal life. He wasn't coming for a recipe. He wasn't coming for some just detail about how to get along in life. He's saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You can't ask for a bigger thing than this. It's the most worthy, incredible, desirable reality imaginable. This is, this is life lived in the presence of God, experiencing the love of God, enjoying the glory of God forever in a new heaven and a new earth. You can't ask for a bigger thing, a bigger question. That's what he wanted. That's what he came looking for. But in the moment of decision, he turned his back on it. He walked away. Somehow you see the, the, the infinite wealth and eternal glories of heaven were not enough to drag his heart away from fleeting pleasures and the treasures of this life. And friends, this is just a picture right here of the tragedy of ruined humanity. This, this is exactly the universal predicament of the lost human race. Why does this guy... How can he possibly turn his back on, on, the, on the Lord who created him and, and the Savior who loved him and embrace just this life, even, even if you have it good? How, how do you give away eternal life in the presence of God, enjoying the love of God and the glory of God? How do you, give, how do you just turn your back on that? Well, you turn your back on it because you don't see it. You, you, you don't taste it. And, and your heart, you see, the human heart loves all the things that, that will destroy us. And so we choose the fleeting things, the passing things, the, the, the sinful things, the, the things that we can, we can get our hands on. We, we choose those things, even though we might do so with grief. It's fascinating to realize that you can come so close to the kingdom of heaven that you can choose your death with grief and yet still choose it. Matthew Henry writes, many are loath to leave Christ, yet they do leave him. After a long struggle between their convictions and their corruptions, their corruptions carry the day. 
They are very sorry that they cannot serve both God and mammon. But if one must be given up, it shall be their God and not their gain. That's tragic, but it's the truth. And so that's what Jesus saw. And what he said is how difficult, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It'd be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I think there's a somberness in Jesus' tone here. Remember, this is the, this is the God who does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Jesus isn't just, just sh- sort of shaking his head and saying, what an idiot. Jesus doesn't do that. He's not unmoved by this man's tragic decision. Here's a man made in the image of God. This is a son of the covenant. This is a soul destined for eternity, either eternal bliss and joy with God or eternal devastation and damnation forever. And Jesus watches this man turn his back on all of that and choose death. And he knows, Jesus knows why he's made this choice. Jesus talks about the deceptive power of of wealth and, and how wealth and pride conspire to deceive us. Friends, I think one of the things we need to recognize is that we have a much more of an American view of money than a Jesus view of money. We're formed by our culture. We accepted a simple fact that, that money is good, and money is good. It's, it's a gift that God gives. It's, it's, it's a good gift. We, we don't have to apologize for wealth. But we do need to be aware of the, the temptations of wealth the power of wealth to destroy us. You see, that's what Americans don't believe. Americans believe that if money is good, that even more money is better. Some, of course, will even say greed is good. We don't believe that. We think, we think contentment is good. But if money comes your way, then that's even better, right? Well, the Bible doesn't have that kind of a view. The Bible just doesn't. So Proverbs 30, verse 8, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that's needful for me, lest I be full and and, uh, deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. That there are are temptations on both ends of the spectrum. One, uh, to, to be poor and steal and profane the name of God. And the other, to be rich and full and deny the name of God. Just self reliant, self confident. Money has its own temptations. Those who desire to be rich uh, fall into many, many right, traps and destroy their souls. Wealth has this deceptive ability. So Jesus says in Matthew 13, the guy goes out and he sows the seed of the gospel and, the, and it springs up. Someone says, I believe, but then the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it out. And it never bears fruit. Wealth can warp our vision. It, it makes this life seem like the most important reality, uh, the most worthwhile pursuit. And so we come to love our homes and our our lifestyles and our conveniences more than the life to come. It's just what happens so easily. It can happen. The story is told of John Wesley visiting a a rich plantation owner. He was visiting the states here, and a man who who knew Wesley invited him to come and tour the estate. And so they got on their horses, and they, they rode for hours all over this man's estate, and, and at the end of the day, hadn't seen the half of it. And so at the end of the day, the two were sitting down for, for dinner, and the, and the plantation owner eagerly asked Wesley, uh, well, Mr. Wesley, what do you think? 
And Wesley replied, I think you're going to have a hard time leaving all this. I think you're going to have a hard time leaving all this. Wealth invites us to love what it can give. And it can give lots of good things. But, but it's hard for wealthy people to be saved. That's from Jesus' mouth. That's not just um, some, some preacher. That's, that's from the mouth of Jesus. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Boys and girls, how easy would it be for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? It's not easy. It's impossible. And yet Jesus says that's, that's what we're talking about. That's how hard, that's how difficult it is for uh, those who have wealth. You see, there are unique obstacles to salvation for the wealthy and the moral. If you think about our context, you see, it's hard for wealthy people to humble themselves like the tax collector. It's hard for, for, for people who are successful in life. I was, I've been reading a, a book by Mez McConnell. He plants uh, churches in Scotland in the very poorest areas of Scotland, the most broken down um, sections of, of the country. And uh, it's called Church in Hard Places. And he, and he says, you know, people come to me and they, they say, it must be so hard to plant churches in, in these places that are just socially devastated. And he says, it is hard. But, but I think it is much more difficult to, to preach Christ among the middle class and the wealthy, the socially acceptable and sort of put together places. He says, I don't have to work hard to convince a drug addict that he is a sinner in need of a savior. He'll admit that to me. But how do I make that point to the man who's got his life altogether, who has no sense of need? It's much more difficult. And so when Jesus says it's hard for the wealthy to be saved, we need to listen to him. We need to hear him. Remember, Jesus, he, he's experienced this. It's not the wealthy people who are sort of gathering themselves around. The successful people who are hanging on his every word. It's the tax collectors and the prostitutes. They're the ones who have an ear to hear. The rest walk away. It's a lesson. It's a message we need to hear for our day. It's a shocking message, and the disciples then respond with amazement. Who then can be saved? Mark 10, 24, the disciples were amazed at his word. Matthew goes even more. They were extremely amazed. They were astonished, flabbergasted, incredulous. You see, they, they believed, one of the assumptions of the day, as, as we said before, is that wealth was um, a sign of the favor of God. And so, and so the wealthy were the easiest to be saved. And if it's, if it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than one of these guys to be saved, well then who can be saved? Boys and girls, I want, I want you to imagine a saving up money to buy something really, really special. When I was, when I was a young guy, I, I wanted a bicycle. I wanted a real bicycle, three-speed. So I saved and we saved and we saved and the day came and we were able to go. It took a long time, but with a little help from mom and dad, we got the bicycle. I want you to think about something that if you could have this, this thing, right? And so you're just saving money. You're working, you're doing odd jobs, you're gathering your, your money together. And finally, the day arrives when you, you realize you've you got enough and you go to the store and you pick it out and you put it on the counter and imagine your shock if the person behind the counter said, um, we don't accept money anymore. No, not cash, not credit card, not a check. 
They don't accept money. And so you say, well, what do you accept? The only thing we accept now is uh, moon rocks. Moon rocks. How in the world are you going to get moon rocks? It's impossible for you to get moon rocks. And yet every store you go to says, no, 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 we don't take money anymore. It's just moon rocks. You would be incredulous. You'd be, you'd be dismayed. That's how the disciples feel. This is what Jesus has just done to them. They realize, you see, that the moral currency, the spiritual currency they were counting on, has just been utterly devalued. It's meaningless. They, they, they believe that, you see, if, if sincere, wealthy, religiously motivated, and morally upright people, if they don't have enough currency to get in, if, if, the, if the spiritual currency of morality and sincerity are no longer accepted as religious currency, how do you get in? Who can be saved? This, this is a, such a relevant text because, you see, we live, in a, we live in a world, it's human nature, but everyone who believes in a God and wants to go to a heaven assumes that spiritual sincerity and morality are precisely what God requires. Many come to church believing that in that act they are gathering up this currency. I'm a good person. I go to church. And they're going to go, you see, into the presence of God. They're going to go to the counter of heaven, and they're going to put all that on the counter, thinking that it's going to purchase them everlasting life. And to their dismay, they're going to realize heaven doesn't operate on that currency. You need something so much more, something that's humanly impossible to obtain. That's the dilemma Jesus puts us in. You see, he's not just, he's not just indicting and rebuking rich people. He's rebuking a whole merit system. He's destroying uh, a, the whole system of human righteousness as the way of salvation. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy or poor. You can't be saved by the labor of your hands. And so when the disciples say, who then can be saved? They're, they're saying to Jesus, well, this guy can't make it. Nobody's good enough. And Jesus says, exactly. Exactly. It's easier to put a camel through the eye of a needle. We've got to hear this because it runs against our, our sort of natural grain. We're can-do people. We live in a can-do country. Right? America is built on the notion of self-government, self-ability. The, the great assumption of most Americans is that uh, salvation is not that difficult. You just say a prayer, you invite Jesus into your heart, you go to church, try to live a better life. It might not be fun, it might not be desirable, but if that's what you want, surely it isn't that hard. And Jesus says it's impossible. It's impossible with man. Why? Because, because the problem is a heart problem. And we can't change our hearts. Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then you also, you who uh, can do good, who are accustomed to doing evil. It's not possible. Can't change your heart. Can't change your nature. 
And, and, and we're so messed up by nature that even knowing what we're doing and knowing the eternal consequences of our decisions left to ourselves, we will stand in the presence of Jesus and we will always choose our money. We will always choose sex. We will always choose comfort. We'll always choose reputation. We will always choose self, even if it's a religious moral self, and we will walk away from Christ, left to ourselves, every time, every time. Salvation is impossible with Christ, with men. That's a lesson we got to hear as the church. The church has assumed it's fairly easy, and the evangelistic methods that many attempt are, are based on that assumption. It's not that hard to get people into the church, get people saved, just have the right music, have the right approach. Don't preach hard doctrinal sermons. Don't sing psalms that sound weird. Don't sing theological, rich, deep, maybe um, hard to understand truths. Talk about felt needs. Talk about relationships. Talk about the love of God. Get some good mood lighting in the sanctuary. Get rid of the hard edges of the gospel, doctrines like hell and election and the necessity of repentance. You have to work at it a bit, but if, with the right techniques, you can get people in the door and you can get them saved. And guess what? There are churches all over the country who believe that's absolutely true. And Lest we just say, well, silly them, you've tried it as well. Ever been on an airplane talking to somebody uh, about their faith or lack of it, and they bring up their objections to the gospel, and you've tried to sort of soften the edges of it, try to make excuses for it? Don't you feel the pressure to try to make the gospel more palatable? Jesus doesn't do that. He says it's hard, it's impossible but people need to hear the real gospel. John MacArthur says this, speaking on these words of Jesus. He says, Jesus judges our aisle walking, our gimmicks, our prefabricated presentations, our pitches, our marketing strategies, our emotional manipulation. Jesus judges us every time we told someone with an inadequate understanding of sin and sovereignty to invite Jesus into their hearts, accept him as their personal savior, believe the facts of the gospel, and that's all they needed to do. Jesus judges that. The aftermath of this kind of evangelism is the appalling failure seen in the lives of millions of people who profess faith in Christ with no consequent impact on them at all, either in their thoughts or beliefs or behavior. Who knows how many millions of people are deluded into believing that they are Christians when in fact they are not. I think he's true. I think the the pollsters who polled the religious community find that truth over and over again. And so we just need to hear this wonderful gospel truth. Sinners can't be saved by human methods. Friends, that includes even our children. I think there's a common assumption in the church that, that being saved as a covenant child isn't that hard. You just believe what your parents believe. Go to a good church. Try to live a good life. Parents can assume it's not that hard to have our children come into the faith. Just bring them to a good church. Keep some rule and order in the, ho in the home. Make sure they have a good school. I mean, of all the hard cases, uh, covenant children must be the easiest. Well, remember, this man was a covenant child. He was a covenant child. He knew all the catechism answers. He kept the law. He honored his parents. 
And it was precisely, you see, his accomplishments as a covenant child in his mind and in, in everyone's mind that made salvation impossible for him. It was his, precisely his good works that blinded him to his bad heart. His morality blinded him to his need for grace, his desperate need for a savior. And so left in his blindness, in the moment of truth, he was lost when he found that he actually loved his life and his money more than he cared for his soul. Moms and dads, don't panic when your children break out with egregious sin. It is very likely exactly what God intends to do to bring them to their understanding of their desperate need for Jesus. And if they don't come to that understanding, friends, they, they, they'll never come to Jesus as a Savior. It's hard. It's impossible, which is why we pray and why we present the beauty of the gospel. And let me wrap with that, because the gospel is... What is impossible with man is possible with God. The beauty of the gospel, you see, is God brings us to the end of ourselves, to the end of our abilities, and the end of our uh, attempts. He just, he just brings the curtain down on it. It's not going to be sufficient. So our case is impossible. It's the doctor saying, this is incurable. But it's not hopeless. It's not hopeless. Because what's impossible with men is precisely possible with God. Who then can be saved? Great question. And the biblical answer is those God determines to save. And he has determined to save. Countless thousands and millions, a, a throng that no man can number. He's determined to save. Jesus says, no man can come unto me unless the Father draw him. But by, by the, the wonderful testimony of Scripture, we know the Father does exactly that. That, that when the word is preached, God opens the hearts of people. And like Lydia, you read in, in Acts 16, and, and her heart was opened by God, and she heard the gospel. Tonight we're going to be talking about this. A little further detail. But it's exactly what God does in this, in this lost world. So those whom God determines to save, they can be saved. And, and those Jesus died to save, they will be saved, right? Jesus says, I haven't lost any. He won't lose any. Because God gives sinners to Jesus Christ. Jesus, in the very next verse here, he's going to be telling his disciples, see, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man there is going to be put to death. And it's through that death that hopeless, lost sinners who can't possibly save themselves, find salvation and are made alive in Jesus Christ. And what, what Jesus and the loving Savior who, who knows us and, and loved us, when, when that Jesus then says, just come, come as you are. Come as little children. Come needy. Don't come with the accomplishments. Don't come with good intentions. Don't come with promises. Come, God have mercy on me, a sinner, it's the only way to come. It's the only way to come. But if you come that way, Jesus promises this man went home justified. When's the last time you asked God for mercy? Mercy, not help, not wisdom, good thing to ask for, not strength, but mercy. Mercy. Unmerited divine favor for a helpless sinner. God have mercy on me. Because you see, then you're coming as a child. I got nothing to bring. I got nothing to offer. 
But Jesus, save me. Save a sinner like me. Have you, have you come to God that way? And friend, if you come to God then seeking mercy, Jesus won't have to tell you to give away your money. It's already gone. If you come to Jesus needing mercy and you, and you experience in Jesus the reality of God's love and grace to you in Christ Jesus, he won't have to tell you to give it away. You're, you're going to say, Lord, it's yours. So, friends, let me ask you, what's the bent of your life? Is, is the bent of your life to hold on to, to things, hold on to self, hold on to reputation, hold on to besetting sin? Is, is that the bent? Or are you finding by the Spirit of God the bent is much more, give it away, give it away, it doesn't matter. Just give me Jesus. Just give me Jesus. Oh, I hope that's true for you. And friends, that's how we lead others to Christ. We don't lead others to Christ by inviting them to a moral lifestyle. We don't lead others to Christ to, by, by, by giving them just these, these, um, these helps on spiritual things. We, we, we lead other people to Christ as we, as we pursue Jesus Christ. And, and the reality of that is, is, is happening in our life. And then we can just come and say, listen, you need to come and follow him with me. Because this Jesus is the way, this Jesus is the truth, and this Jesus is the life. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's live like it. And if, you, if you've never come to Christ this way, I beg you, I beg you, do it today. He's a loving Savior. All those who come to me, he says, I will no eyes cast out. You can count on it. Let's pray. God in heaven, Lord, you know how self-righteous we are. You know how, how apathetic that makes us, how proud that makes us. And Father, we confess the ugliness of it. We confess the awful truth that we, of all people, should be absolutely saturated with the love for Jesus Christ. We stand so close, and yet we can be infatuated with the world and with a thousand other things. And Lord, forgive us and change us. Lord, we cannot save ourselves. And so we just, we resign every attempt, every, everything we would want to put on our spiritual resume. Lord, it's, it's just worthless. We stand naked before you. People who've sinned in the most grotesque and grievous, offensive ways against you, the living God. Lord, just give us the eyes to see it. And give us the faith then to cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner that we might be able, by your power, your grace, by your atoning blood, we might be able to enter the kingdom of God. And we give you all the thanks, all the praise, all the glory forever and ever. And God's people said, amen. Let's respond with a prayer together, near, still near, close to thy heart. Draw me, my Savior, so precious thou art. Let's stand together and sing.
that's your heart's prayer. Give me but Jesus, my Lord crucified, then God has a blessing for you. This is a blessing not um, for anything other than the very presence of God in Jesus Christ. And so receive the Lord's words. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.